Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnants of the house of Israel, who have been borne by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Holy Father, as we come before your throne of grace, we would ask now for the blessing of your Holy Spirit upon your word. And we would ask for the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon the preaching of your word. Father, we pray that you would send forth your word and power to strengthen those who are regenerate, to strengthen the saints. And Father, we pray for those among us who perhaps are outside of Christ. Father, we pray that through your word you would break the hearts of stone and you would impart hearts of flesh. And that as a result of the close of this sermon, Christ would be magnified. And all present would draw near to the Father through Him. Help us, fathers, we seek to understand the doctrine of providence. We pray that you administer it unto our souls according to our need. And we would ask all of these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, John Adams was the first vice president of the United States and the second president of the United States. And he's remembered to, his, uh, to history as a man with purpose. He grew up the son of a farmer working very long days in the field. Uh, he was educated at Harvard, one of the most rigorous institutions in the world at the time. Uh, he became a very successful lawyer in his 20s and in his 30s. And then he left the uh, profession of law to play very important roles in the colony's uh, break from Great Britain. His life story is one of purpose. And he was actually serving as the United States ambassador to Holland when he received word that Great Britain had surrendered and officially recognized the colonies as the new United States of America. And as he soaked up all of these successes and as he looked back on his life, he wrote the following. 
He said that it is the result of a vast number and variety of events comprising the great scheme of providence. When I recollect the circumstances, I am amazed and feel that it is no work of mine. John Adams had purpose, but more than that, he had a conviction that his life was but one aspect of what he called the great scheme of providence. And we too are like John Adams. We desire to have purpose in life. We want to know why are we here? What am I to do in God's kingdom? But sometimes we don't look at our purpose in life in very positive terms like John Adams. Just this previous week, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit uh, the ancient Near East and Turkey and Syria, killing over 20,000 people and tens of thousands more uh, injured uh, without food, without shelter, uh, out in the cold, dying. In literally a night, thousands of lives were lost. Thousands of souls entered into eternity. Thousands of families were disrupted by grief upon grief. And we may not have 7.8 magnitude earthquakes that strike us, but tragedy does strike our lives unannounced. And it disrupts us. And it makes us wonder, what is my purpose? What is God doing with my life? And it is in this longing for our purpose It is in this void to know what is God doing with me that the doctrine of providence ministers to us. But as we have our doubts answered, as we search for answers to these questions, what will end up happening is this. Our gaze will be turned away from ourselves and it will be turned upwards to God and His glory who Himself is the author of providence whose decree is the foundation of providence, and in whose hands all things are held. So, how should we define providence? Well, the word itself has Latin origins. It comes from two Latin words, pro and vide. Pro meaning beforehand, and vide meaning to see. It's where we get our English word video. So if you put these words together, uh, before and seeing, it literally means to provide or to see beforehand. So in a sense then, the doctrine of providence means that God sees or provides for His creatures beforehand, that He meets their needs. But theologically, this doctrine is much richer and more widespread than just that definition. If you'll take a copy of the Trinity Psalter and turn to our Confession of Faith in the back and turn to chapter 5, paragraph 1. Chapter 5 of Divine Providence. The framers of our confession give a wonderful definition of providence. They write the following. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things 
from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. So put in modern day English, this is how I would define providence. Providence is God's upholding, directing, and supplying for all he has created according to his decree which encompasses all things and to the end that he has determined for each one of his creatures. Providence is God's upholding, directing, and supplying for all he has created according to his decree which encompasses all things and to the end that he has determined for each one of his creatures. Now, if you would look back in the confession in chapter 5, paragraph 1, I would argue that our confession gives us two reasons or two motivations why we need to know this doctrine. Notice that it states in paragraph 1 that providence works upon all creatures to the end for which they were created. So reason number one why you need to know this doctrine of providence. Would you like to know your very reason for existence from God? then it is to this doctrine of providence, you must travel. But it doesn't end there. The confession says that providence results to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Reason number two why you need to know this doctrine. There is a God with whom we have to do. Would you have saving knowledge of this God? Christian, would you have greater worship of your God? Then it is to the doctrine of providence you must travel. And if you travel there, you will have greater adoration for this God. Now, this is the first of a three-part series uh, on the doctrine of providence. Uh, Today's sermon will look at the essentials of providence. Uh, The next sermon, God willing, will look at the goal of providence. And the third and final, we will uh, consider the application of providence. And today's sermon will come from Isaiah 46. We're going to focus on verses 8 through 11. We read the whole chapter to get the context. And this sermon will have three points. First, we'll consider the author of providence. Second, we'll consider the foundation of providence. And third, we will look at the control of providence. So let us now go to the text of Scripture to see what the Holy Spirit wants to teach God's people through Isaiah. And the primary message of Isaiah 46 is this. Because Yahweh is able to fulfill His purposes, all idols are false, and He alone is the true God. And so the primary application for us today is this. We are commanded from Scripture to remember this, to recall it to mind, to cast away our idols, and to respond appropriately to this God. Now, chapter 46 of Isaiah falls within a section of the book from chapters 38 through 55. And that section we can call the book of the servant. And this section begins in chapter 38 with Hezekiah departing from the way of faith, through alliance with Babylon, as Babylon was rising to power. 
And Isaiah goes to him with a word from the Lord and says, in effect, to Babylon you have appealed, so to Babylon you shall go. But Isaiah prophesied that it would not happen in Hezekiah's lifetime, but it would actually happen over a century after Isaiah and Hezekiah. And so these words in chapter 46 are actually words of instruction, words of rebuke, and words of hope, not to the hearers of Isaiah's day, although they received it, but the primary application is to the the Judean exiles in Babylon. Isaiah prophesied these things for those exiles over a century before the exile happened. Now, the Jewish church in exile, those who received the words of Isaiah 46, was falling apart. Some had apostatized into idolatry. Others were wavering. They were struggling with believing in God's deliverance, but also they were seeing the power of the Babylonians, and they were doubting. Others were despairing because of the idolatrous culture, even as Paul did when he walked through Athens. He said his spirit was provoked within him. And others were still clinging to the one true God, but they were hanging on by faith's fingernails. If anything, this is instructive for us. There are no new struggles for the people of God. So what then did Isaiah think most important to give to those exiles? What word of hope and rebuke did the Holy Spirit have for God's people on that day? And by application, what word does the Holy Spirit have for us when we are in the midst of such struggles? Well, first, Isaiah wants us to see the author of providence. Look at verses 8 and 9. Isaiah writes, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. In effect, God says, remember who I am. You have forgotten who I am. Isaiah is teaching us, if you would understand providence, you must look to its author, God. There is a constant temptation for the people of God to forget who their God is. And so Isaiah, as it were, gives us a study in in divinity, if you will, a God refresher. Look at verse 9. Yahweh declares twice in this verse His uniqueness as God. Now you can't see it in the English translation, but in in the Hebrew text, there are two different words used for God. He says in verse 9, for I am God. The the title that is used there is El. Secondly, he says, I am God. The title that is used there is Elohim. Now these are the two main titles used of Yahweh as the one true God throughout the entire Old Testament. El denotes God in His majesty, His transcendence, His power. Elohim is a plural noun indicating not that there's more than one God, but that God possesses all of divinity in Himself. He is Truly God, and there is no other. It denotes His power, His uniqueness, and His divinity. But these words don't only have theological instruction for us, they're polemical, because those titles were used of the surrounding pagan nations and their gods. El was the supreme Canaanite deity. And so when Yahweh says, I am El, I am Elohim, He's not just teaching us who He is. 
But he's saying all of these other gods are false. They are liars. I am El. I am Elohim. And there is no other. And he tells us, the people of God, remember this. Recall it to mind. Recall who I am. He says, remember the former things. What former things? Redemptive history. That in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, Yahweh promised to crush the head of the serpent and to bring a Messiah. That this one true God redeemed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That this one God, He is to be feared. His threats of exile were not hypothetical. But He is a God to be trusted because His promises of restoration will come to pass. This is the God who would appoint Cyrus to redeem Israel in exile politically. And this is the God who would bring His servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem His people Spiritually, God says to His people in the midst of their difficulties, a simple message, remember who I am. I am Yahweh. I am El. I am Elohim. And there is no other. Now this temptation to forget who God is in the midst of providential difficulties is not unique to Isaiah 46. Our own experiences will bear out that it's something that the people of God struggle with today. Whenever frowning providence comes our way, that is when the struggle of doubt begins. Why am I going through what I'm going through? How long is this going to last? Is God punishing me for a hidden sin? I cannot hold on much longer. Those are the questions that we wrestle with when providence frowns upon us. And in the midst of that, we are tempted to forget who God is. But we're not just tempted to forget God in frowning providence, but also smiling providence. This was the reason for Israel's exile. They were obedient to the Lord, and the Lord exalted them above all the nations of the earth, and they fell into idolatry and forgot their God. Deuteronomy 8, verses 11-14 through 14 says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your, your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Isaiah is diagnosing our condition here. He's teaching us that in the midst of both smiling providence and frowning providence, we have an idolatry problem. We are prone to forget God. It reminds me of the time that George Washington, he issued a proclamation before the Continental Army was to go out to battle. And he wrote the following. He said, It is a noble cause we are engaged in. It is the cause of virtue in mankind. Every temporal advantage and comfort to us and our posterity depends upon the vigor of our exertions. What was, what was Washington doing? He was reminding them who they were. He was reminding them where they had come from. He was reminding them what they were about. Because the fate of the battle depended on one thing, remembering. 
If they did not remember, they would lose. If they did remember, they would win. And that's similar to what Isaiah is doing here. He is saying, in the midst of both smiling providence and the midst of frowning providence, remember who God is. Do not forget Because the fact of the matter, brothers and sisters, is that we are not strong enough to remember. We're not strong enough to carry ourselves through our troubles. We're not spiritual enough to stay faithful to God in the midst of prosperity. We're too sinful. We're too weak. Our troubles are too big for our backs. And so it is not enough just to know who God is, that God, the one true God, is behind providence. But you must also know that He is your God. He is your covenant God. He is the God who loves you and has given His Son for you. It is not enough for you to carry your faith through smiling and frowning providences. Your faith and your God must carry you. Look at verses 3 and 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob all the remnants of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. Perhaps Yahweh's uniqueness as God God is seen most clearly in this. He is the God who is committed to His people. And He will carry His people through to the end. So today, if you are facing frowning providence, cast your trouble upon the back of God. It is wide and strong enough to bear you through. If today you are facing smiling providence, thank God and fall on your knees and beg Him to keep you from falling away. In the midst of providence, we must remember who is the author of it, our covenant God. Mm-hmm. Secondly, Isaiah wants to show us the foundation of providence in verse 10. God continues, he says that he is declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah is teaching us that providence's foundation is the decree of God made before the foundation of the world. Turn in your confession of faith to chapter 3, paragraph 1. Chapter 3, paragraph 1 says, God has decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. And then in chapter 5, paragraph 2, it states, in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly so that there is not anything be false any by chance or without His providence. So Isaiah is saying that God's decree, His singular decree, 
made before the foundation of the world is the foundation of His providence. And providence is the historical outworking of that decree. God's decree is the foundation of providence made before the foundation of the world. And providence is the outworking in history of that decree. But notice how Isaiah paints this picture of God's decree. He, he describes it in lively and active terms. It's not God decrees. He said God declares the end from the beginning. Not just God declares, He declares from ancient times, things not yet done, that no man could ever guess. He says that God counsels within Himself all His purpose. In other words, the doctrine of God's decree is not just theological jargon to Isaiah. It's exciting, and it should excite us. Now this sense of God holding counsel within Himself is preparatory to the revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament. Counsel implies more than one. And across the entire Old Testament, you see God describe Himself, you see Him described in plural terms. We already said it once, Elohim. It was a plural noun of God. At creation, God said, let us make man in our own image. And we see all across the Old Testament that God says He holds counsel within Himself. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1. I think this ties in beautifully with our sermon series through Ephesians. Ephesians 1. And we're going to read verses 3 through 14. And I would argue that the Apostle Paul was steeped in the theology of Isaiah. And in particular, I would argue that he was steeped in this doctrine of the Trinity and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit holding counsel within themselves before the foundation of the world. Isaiah didn't see these things as, clear, as clearly as Paul saw them though. Because Paul was given greater light than Isaiah as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So let us read verses 3 through 14. And I want you to notice how many times Paul uses words similar to those we've read in Isaiah 46. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I count no less than ten times that the Apostle Paul refers to the plan of God, the counsel of God, the predestination of God, the purpose of God, the will of God. The counsel of the Trinity, made before the foundation of the world, is the determining reality behind all things. But again, this is not just theological jargon. It is this reality that the exiles of Israel needed to hear. Don't forget the context. They are struggling. The church is falling apart. Do not forget your context, your struggles, your blessings. This is a truth we need to hear. Throughout this entire section of Isaiah, Yahweh knows His people need to hear this. And He relentlessly asserts His uniqueness in His counsel. Listen to these references. Isaiah 40, verses 13 through 14. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? 41, 21 through 22. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Isaiah 42.9 Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isaiah 43.10-13 You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come, and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know, not any. God leaves us no doubt of His uniqueness and His decree as the foundation of His providence. Now again, remember the context. You can imagine some of the Babylonians of that day hearing this scripture read, spoken about, memorized, and saying, well, okay, your God says that, um, but our God, Marduk, which was the name of their chief God, Our God, Marduk, says the same things in our scriptures. So what makes Yahweh unique? They both say the same thing. And it's precisely this. Yahweh through Isaiah made known the name of Israel's political redeemer, Cyrus, over a century before he came to power. Yahweh made known the name of Cyrus over a century before he came to power. Now, 
the Babylonian gods, the gods of the surrounding nations, did say that they used Cyrus, but they said that after the fact. And their scriptures, those were written that the gods of the surrounding nations used Cyrus after Cyrus came to power. Yahweh alone was the only god of the ancient Near East that declared Cyrus over a hundred years before he came to power. Isaiah 45 verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be, be closed. Yahweh's decree, the decree of the triune God, is the foundation of his providence. His providence is the outworking of his decree. And if we ever doubt that, he has given us an example in history, Cyrus. Now, how do we apply this truth to us? Well, for one, your conscience needs to be bound by what the scriptures say concerning God's decree. It needs to believe what the scriptures teach, that his decree encompasses all things, and that it is the foundation of providence. But it is not just knowledge for us to have. Uh, When Cyrus was actually conquering the known world, he once remarked that wherever he went and whatever he put his mind to, he found success. And the Greeks, the classical Greeks of that time, um, had adoration for Cyrus. They praised him. They said that he was the prototypical king, that he was the man worthy of eternal imitation. He was politically astute. He was just and merciful. And that he had military prowess. He was, in a sense, the king of kings to them. They not only had knowledge about Cyrus, they had adoration and worship for Cyrus. How much more then should God's people have adoration for the God who held Cyrus in between his fingers? When the Apostle Paul considered these things, he declared, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. The Apostle Paul could not contain himself. He got ecstatic and it just came out. Praise and adoration for this God. And so I declare Him to you. And I say in the words of Isaiah, Israel, this is your God. Behold Him and adore Him. So Isaiah has shown us the author of providence. He has shown us the foundation of providence. And then thirdly and finally, He wants to show us the control of providence. Look at verse 11. God continues calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. The doctrine goes like this. There's a logical flow to it. If God is omnipotent, and He's the author of providence, and if He has decreed all things that are to come to pass before the foundation of the world, then it follows that His providence encompasses 
everything. In other words, all things in history and time, from the great to the small, are within the hands of Almighty God. This is not just God in counsel before the world began. This is God in action. This is God in history. This is sovereignty in outworking. And again, Isaiah uses Cyrus as an example of these things. He calls him a bird of prey because Cyrus came to power so quickly. And as I said earlier, Cyrus claimed that wherever he went and whatever he did, he found success. And Isaiah is saying, yes, and every aspect of that was controlled by the hand of God. In other words, it was controlled by providence. You see, this doctrine gets into the very nature of God. God is transcendent. He is outside of time, Lord of time, creator of time. But He's also what theologians call imminent, that He is involved in time. He is not the deist God who stepped back and lets the laws of nature run its course. He is the immense God. He fills all things in His fullness. How involved is God in creation? As I said, it's from the greatest things to the things that are not so great. He controls the great rulers of this age, Cyrus, Joe Biden, Vladimir Putin. His hand feeds us daily in our breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He has numbered all the hairs of our head. And unfortunately, if you're like me, that number is getting less. No pet bird of our children falls dead apart from his will. No trial is endured except that which comes from his hand. No good is enjoyed. No nations rise or fall apart from the providential hand of God. And because we are prone to forget that, Isaiah wants to press it into us. He wants us to be astonished at that. That God's fingers are in everything. Now, inevitably, when you assert this aspect of providence or God's sovereignty, the question comes up, well, if providence controls all things, how is man free? And before we answer that question, we have to recognize this, that providence is assumed across the entire Bible. And it's a truth that is there, not to hurt God's people, but to help them. First and foremost, before we answer that question, we must get our hearts right. It is not a philosophical conundrum to try to answer. It's a spiritual life raft to buoy us up, to help us in frowning and smiling providence. But the Scriptures do give an answer to that question. It might not be an answer people like, but the Scriptures answer it. And I think our confession summarizes it very well. Turn to back to, uh, par- uh, chapter 5, paragraphs 2 and 3. The confession states, By the same providence, He ordereth them, or all things, to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Paragraph 3. God in His ordinary providence makes use of means 
yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So, in other words, the doctrine goes something like this. God's decree is the first cause of all history. All things that have happened, that are happening, and that will happen, happen because God decreed it. But God carries out that decree through second causes. In other words, through providence. He does not always use second causes. And when He doesn't, those are called miracles or supernatural. Super, above, nature. Outside of second causes. But ordinarily, He uses second causes. So that leads to another question. What then are second causes? And you could go on and on, but the wills of men, the actions of the animal kingdom, the laws of nature, and also the spiritual realm, Satan and his minions, and the elect angels who are obedient to God and to his Christ. God carries out his decree ordinarily through second causes. Now, probably the best way to understand this is to Go back to the scripture and use the example that Isaiah has given us. Cyrus was called Yahweh's anointed. He was called the man of his counsel. Isaiah says that Yahweh decreed before the world began that Cyrus would redeem Israel and Babylon. But how did God bring that about? How did Cyrus think of himself? Did he go about conquering the known world saying, I'm going to fulfill God's decree? I'm going to set Israel free because I love Yahweh. No. His motivation was political ambition. He often attributed all of his actions, he would attribute his actions to the gods of all the nations he had conquered. He would say, this God raised me up and this God raised me up. In other words, he was a good politician, but he was a pagan. Isaiah 45 verse 4 says, For the sake of my servant Jacob... And Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, Cyrus, though you do not know me. So in other words, God's decree that he would free his people from Babylon came about through Cyrus and his own political ambitions. And even though Cyrus did have a will of his own, and he chose to have political ambitions and conquer the known world, nevertheless, even that was underneath the sovereign control of God. That is the doctrine. That is the teaching. And if we try to pry more into it, we will do as Calvin said not to do, go past where the scriptures give light. And again, it's not a philosophical conundrum but it is intended to be a spiritual life raft for the people of God. That His decree is the foundation of providence, and He carries it out through second causes. Now, how does that truth apply to us? I think it applies to us in this. The Scripture is clear that God has not just ordained the ends, but He's ordained the means to the ends. And though I said in point one that we're prone to fall into idolatry and look to our circumstances instead of to God, nevertheless, we are still to use the means 
God has appointed. We are to use God's means while trusting God in the midst of it. So think about it like this. Do you want to grow in grace and knowledge? Then use the means of grace that God has appointed for the good of your soul. And use them in faith and with diligence. Because God has ordained them. Men, do you want to provide for your family? Pray for your daily bread. And then wake up in the morning and work an entire day of work. Parents, do you want your children to become Christians? Do you want them to be converted? Pray for their salvation, but then instruct them in the gospel. Be an example to them in the gospel. Do you want the lost to be saved in your workplace? Pray for them, and then answer your prayer and share the gospel with them. And probably the question that hits us, uh, hits us hardest is, do we spend too much time trying to figure out the secret will of God or the revealed will of God? In other words, do we fret ourselves trying to think about God's decree or do we look at God's means, the things He has revealed to us and entrust ourselves to those and the God who has ordained them? Isaiah has shown us who the author of providence is. It is the triune God, and He is your God, Christian. He has shown us the foundation of this providence, the decree of God. And He has shown us the control of this providence, that all things are controlled by the hands of God. Providence helps us to see from the Scriptures our purpose in life, and it leads us to a greater adoration for God. And as Isaiah made clear, because God is able to fulfill all of His purposes, He alone is the true God. So I exhort you today, cast away the idol of self-control. You don't have ultimate control over your life, but your God does. God's decree is the foundation of providence, so adore God for it. And He brings about that decree through His means. So give yourself to those means and trust God that He will bless them. Let's pray. Holy Father, we do thank You for the fact that You, along with Your Son and Your Spirit, are the one true and living God. And that you alone are God and there is no other. But you are not just God, you are our God. Father, you have covenanted with us through your Son. And you are with us by your Spirit in His presence through faith. And so I pray that you would help us to understand providence. Pray that you would help us to find our purpose in the Scriptures and in nowhere else. Pray that You would help us to have more adoration and worship for You. For You are omniscient and omnipotent. And from eternity to eternity, You are God. 
I pray that you would help us to give ourselves to the means that you have appointed to accomplish your will. We would give ourselves to the means of grace. That we would not spend time fretting over what tomorrow may bring. But that we would trust the promises that you have given us for today. And that we would trust you not just with our physical needs for today, but our spiritual ones as well. Father, help us to apply this truth to our lives. And may you receive the glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would please stand for a hymn of response. Number 58, He leadeth me, O blessed thought.